Johnson. This is now officially the world's largest anti-disco rally. Disco sucks. Disco sucks. Disco sucks. Disco sucks. My name is Ben Porter, and you're listening to the Pastime Podcast, a show about the best baseball stories throughout history. Today's episode is about the day Disco died, Disco Demolition Night. Before we address the disastrous marketing promotion that had over 50,000 people chanting Disco Sucks, we have to answer the question of what is Disco? It wasn't just a genre of music, it was a way of life and it had its own culture. That culture was developed in the late 1960s, a time of anti-establishmentarianism. Rock and roll music dominated the scene back then and there was a stigmatization of dance music. Think Footloose. But the dance scene was easily found if looked for in the right places. African American, Latino, and LGBT joints had different vibes than the rock and roll dominant music culture of white America. Disco music was born from those vibes, and with the help of white folks, who historically steal ideas from other cultures, it became mainstream. Disco music is reflective of the culture that surrounded it. The fast-paced music matched the heart rates of those dancing to it, whose beats per minute were probably elevated by heavy doses of cocaine, or party drugs such as quaaludes, also known as disco biscuits. The lyrics, not scholarly by any stretch of the imagination, illustrated what disco was all about dancing, and sex. And that's about it. Here, I'm going to play you a clip from a song called In the Bush by Musique. Let's see if you can figure out the underlying message in these euphemistic lyrics. It doesn't take a genius to know they're not talking about landscaping. Now, not every disco song was this overtly sexual, but the underlying theme of disco is clear. It was all about fun. The mystique of nightclubs like Studio 54, which was riddled with celebrities on a nightly basis, led many people to the disco scene. It was a scene that allowed them to indulge all of their vices, whether it be dancing, doing drugs, or fucking. And people loved it, and, well, can you really blame them? But as disco became more mainstream, two things happened. First, the glorification of sexual promiscuity made disco plenty of enemies. Throughout history, musicians and performers have faced backlash for sexual lyricism and imagery. Elvis Presley's dancing was considered vulgar because he gyrated his hips in a certain way. Hip-hop music is heavily criticized for its use of scantily clad women in its music videos. You think suburban white mothers didn't freak out when they saw Nelly's tip drill music video and their son's search histories in the early 2000s? Forget about it. People have always attacked music for openly sexual lyrics, and that's exactly what happened with disco. The second thing that made disco enemies was the attempt of rock artists to break into the genre. They saw a golden opportunity to sell records, and they went for it. The Rolling Stones made Miss You. David Bowie made Let's Dance. Put on your red shoes and dance the blue. 
and Rod Stewart made Do You Think I'm Sexy. Rock and roll fans were furious. They thought their beloved rock bands were selling out, making lazy music to chase a paycheck. They resented disco music for that and made it their mission to do away with the drug and sex-fueled party music, which is kind of funny considering rock music was born of a stick-it-to-the-man mentality. I mean, there's literally a song called Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll. The irony of anti-establishment rockers trying to take down music rooted in social, political, and sexual liberation cannot be understated. And amidst that mixture of disco hatred and irony was a man named Steve Dahl. You might know him from the beginning of the episode, uh, the guy who started the Disco Sucks chant. Steve Dahl was a radio host in Chicago and a shoe-in for Disco Hater of the Year. I mean, this guy truly hated disco to his core. So much so, in fact, that he recorded a diss song against the entire culture of disco. It's called Do You Think I'm Disco? a parody of Rod Stewart's Do You Think I'm Sexy? And, well, just listen. Please dance with me. I wear tight pants. I always stuff a sock in. It always makes the ladies start to talk in. My shirt is open. I never use the buttons. Though I look hip, I work for E.F. I mean, say what you will about Steve Dahl, but this dude was resolute in his disdain for everything disco. And believe it or not, the song resonated with others and hit number 58 on the Billboard Top 100 charts in October of 1979. Yes, Steve Dahl, the Chicago radio host, for a time being was in between Barry Manilow and Cher on the Billboard Top 100 ahead of songs like The Devil Went Down to Georgia by Charlie Daniels and Highway to Hell by ACDC. I'm going to repeat that so you all understand the gravity of what I just said. That garbage, trash song that you just heard by Steve Dahl was ahead of Highway to Hell by ACDC. But regardless of the quality or content of his music, Steve Dahl was flat-out entertaining, and he echoed a sentiment shared by a large number of Americans. His antics attracted the attention of Mike Veck, promotions director for the Chicago White Sox and son of Bill Veck, the team's owner. Veck went to Dahl to do what promotional directors do, put asses in the seats. And so the two got to work on planning what would be one of the most disastrous events in baseball history. So to recap, now we know what disco is, how it began, why people hated it, and who Steve Dahl is and how he was connected to the White Sox. Now it's time to talk about the main event, Disco Demolition Night. Steve Dahl and Mike Vex's promotional efforts came to fruition on July 12, 1979. On that day, the White Sox were scheduled to host the Detroit Tigers for a doubleheader at Old Comiskey Park. Both of those teams were, at that time, decent at best, and the White Sox had been struggling to fill the stadium. But on July 12th of that year, the stadium was quite literally overflowing. Old Comiskey Park had a capacity of 44,492, and on that day, there were reportedly well over 50,000 people in the stadium. There are videos of fans lowering ropes like Rapunzel in her castle from the second level to street level, 
and fans using them to scale the outer wall of the stadium, just to secure a spot in the temporary anti-disco haven. As the first game came to a close, with the home White Sox losing 4-1, the crowd became restless and started throwing disco records from the upper decks, littering the field and hitting people in the stands below them. Here's the White Sox broadcast crew that night, Harry Carey and Jimmy Pearsall. Well, there are a lot of guys stoned out here tonight. I, I don't know whether it's the beer or what they're doing. Oh, boy, look at that one just missed Gates. That, that one just missed Gates. Boy, that's very dangerous. They'll have to call that second game to keep that up. Oh, Jimmy, they would indeed keep it up. In fact, you haven't seen anything yet. Oh, and forget about playing that second game. With large anti-disco signs draped from rafters all over the stadium, fans continued stirring in their seats, anticipating what was to come. But what was to come, exactly? What is a disco demolition? Basically, the promotion goes like this. That night, admission price was 99 cents and a record, so every fan brought a disco vinyl to the park. Most of those records were collected at the gate, though they clearly missed some as they were being thrown onto the field. And then they were put in a big box. Then, well, I'll just let Steve Dahl explain what would happen to them. Well, listen, we took all the disco records that you brought tonight. We got them in a giant box. And we're going to blow them up real good. Steve Dahl was standing in center field in a full military uniform in front of an extremely amateur-looking pyrotechnic setup. He talked for a while, hyped up the crowd with some Disco Sucks chants that went on way too long and eventually died down, and then he kept talking, and stalling, and talking, and stalling some more. But then he finally got to the part that people scaled the wall to see. One, two, three, boom! Here they go! A dynamite-laden box full of disco records ignited and exploded, leaving vinyl and wooden shrapnel all over the outfield, some of it on fire. Unbeknownst to Dahl and Vec, though, was the fact that lighting the fuse didn't just apply to the explosives wired to the box of disco records. When the fuse ran out and that box exploded, the fans just about lost their minds. Fans on the lower level stormed the field from all directions, some dropping onto the warning track from the tall outfield wall. My personal favorite was the man who somehow climbed onto the foul pole and slid down it like a stripper onto the field from the upper level. It was chaos. 7,000 fans occupied the field, running around wildly, throwing bottles and flinging vinyls like frisbees. In the upper decks, those who felt left out of the anarchy set fire to the anti-disco signs that were draped from the guardrails. A 12-foot-long, 1-foot-wide strip of turf was ripped from the infield, ruining the area between the pitcher's mound and the plate. And in center field, some fans started a bonfire. Yes, a legitimate bonfire. Oh, and did I mention that people were setting off fireworks? No? Well, they were. Old Comiskey Park was burning, literally, and there was little anyone could do to put an end to it. Not even Bill Veck the owner of the Chicago White Sox. But he tried. Don't spoil the night for everybody else. Please clear the field so the ball fans can see a game. 
Mrs. Belbeck, please clear the park or we'll have to call off the game and close the park. Do you want to hear the fans' response? I know you do. Here you go. What? Fuck the field. Fuck the field. Oh, whoops, I'm sorry. Poor Bill. He sounded like a desperate parent threatening to withhold dessert from his child if he didn't come inside for dinner. Unfortunately, his begs and pleads fell on 14,000 deaf ears, and the riot continued. In addition to the physical destruction of the stadium and playing surface, there were some racist undertones during the event. A man named Vince Lawrence, who was black, was working as an usher that night, and he noticed some things that disturbed him. He was just 15 years old at the time, and he was a fan of Steve Dahl's radio station, 97.9 The Loop. He was even wearing a Loop t-shirt. But as shit started to hit the fan, people ran up to Lawrence, directing Disco Sucks chants at him, breaking records in his face, some of which weren't even disco records, but records by black artists such as Marvin Gaye and Stevie Wonder. Because Disco's origins were largely African American and LGBT, people who belonged to those communities were identified as Disco, regardless of their taste in music. If people were foaming at the mouth to destroy Disco, and they were incapable of separating Disco from black and LGBT culture, then the idea of a Disco demolition is inherently racist and homophobic. Now, I truly believe Steve Dahl was simply a lunatic who just hated Disco and Mike Vex saw this wave as an opportunity to fill the crowd. I don't believe on the organizational end there were any racist or homophobic intentions behind the promotion, but the assholes were there, and the bigoted undertones of the event can't be overlooked. The unfortunate events of the night weren't just limited to the ballpark either. Residents of the surrounding neighborhood experienced the chaos firsthand as it spilled out into the streets near Comiskey Park. Here's Jim Sutera, a man who lived close by. I had to chase two boys out of my hall that was urinating in it. And also we had a car on the curb by our, by our house. We're all constantly cleaning our halls and our, our streets here with beer cans from these people coming here. What might pass as a crazy night or great story in a fraternity house can be categorized as traumatizing for normal area residents like Jim Sutera and his neighbors. Is it funny 41 years later? Absolutely. But it illustrates just how out of hand things got. Eventually, policemen and security guards walked onto the field wielding batons, urging people to get back to their seats. Slowly, the crowd started to disperse, and the playing surface became visible again. But it looked much, much different than it did a few hours prior. There was debris from the explosion all over the field, and where there weren't busted vinyls... There were bottles, cans, torn up signs, and the clothing of fans who, for some reason, decided the riot would be more enjoyable shirtless. The grounds crew and policemen replaced the rabid spectators on the field and started cleaning, hoping to get the second game in. But with 12 square feet of turf ripped up and a large section of charred grass in center field, all hope was lost for the White Sox. Sparky Anderson, the Detroit Tigers coach, told the umpires if they forced his team to play the second game, given the long break and condition of the field, the Tigers would do so under protest. Anderson's argument held water, and to nobody's surprise, the umpires ruled the field unplayable for the second game. 
Eventually, American League president Lee McPhail would rule the game of forfeit in favor of the Tigers. Mike Veck, the owner's son, partnered with a random Chicago radio host, had lost a game for the White Sox. When it was all said and done, a number of fans were injured during the event, and 39 more were arrested. No one, though, not even the field at Comiskey Park, was more damaged than Disco. And I'm not talking about the records that were destroyed by explosives. Disco music continued to be popular during the summer of 1979, but afterwards, it began to decline due to public backlash. Now, there's no way to prove that Disco Demolition Night was truly the first nail in Disco's coffin, but many people argued that it was. July 12, 1979 is, and forever will be, referred to as the day Disco died. The following day, Steve Dahl was up in his radio booth, and he was asked about the event and whether he was responsible for it, to which he answered, But you're not taking responsibility for what happened. I don't think I have to. I didn't, I haven't done anything. I packed Bill Vec's baseball stadium for him, made him a lot of money last night, did my job, everybody liked it, I left, people wanted to come on the field, and their security people couldn't keep him in the stands. Would you do it over again? Yeah. What's happening, baby? How the heck are you? Special thanks to the Rolling Stones, David Bowie, Rod Stewart, Steve Dahl, and Yahoo Music Editor-in-Chief Lindsey Parker, all of whom provided information and clips which were used during this podcast. If you enjoyed, please leave a comment, like, subscribe, and follow me at Ben13Porter on all platforms so you can keep up with the latest episode releases. I always stuff a sock in It always makes the ladies start to talk And my shirt is open I never use the button